Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've got a big discussion coming today. We're going to talk markets with Mike Zuzlo, Global Commodity Research and Analytics, here in just a moment. Before segment two, we're going to check in with Dr. Paul Sunberg at the Swine Health Information Center. A few recent outbreaks of African swine fever are worth tracking around the globe. Dr. Paul will have that update for us. And then in segment three, we're going to touch base with Mary Thomas Hart. She's the chief counsel at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. There's been a lot of activity in Washington, D.C. Lately, Mary Thomas will bring us the NCBA perspective. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's jump over to these markets. Whether we're talking commodities, equities, or bonds, everything is on the move today. Joining us with an update on the factors that are making these markets jump around is Mike Zuzalo. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, there is a lot happening in the broader market here this week, Mike, and I was hoping we could start with one piece of information that was released today, CPI, that other measure of inflation. Can you bring us up to speed? What did we get from Uncle Sam this morning as far as data is concerned? Yeah, you bet. Year over year for February up 6%. That's the smallest gain since September of 2021, Mike, and that compares to a plus 6.4% last month. Um, housing costs remain pretty elevated. Um, the, the monthly inflation rate, though, is still about double from what we need to bring that inflation down to the Federal Reserve's target of about 2%. It's interesting because the, the Goldman Sachs people are saying that the Fed will pause next week on their update on monetary policy due out at the middle of the week. Um, due to the bank situation that we've been having to contend with in the commodity markets. I think the CPI number is hot enough that they'll probably have to come in and do a quarter point hike. But I do think the market, uh, and I am along with the market, I'm pulling back from a half point hike. And we've seen that in the bond market. We've seen that in the dollar so far this week in trade. All right, Mike, if that's the case, if we do get a smaller hike here when the Fed comes out with their update next week, how is that going to impact sort of the broader market idea around this SVP and these banks that are struggling? Yeah, the big thing right now for the commodity people out there is there is a similarity between this and 2008, Mike, and it goes back to the margin calls and the liquidity and having to get out of profitable positions to be able to cash flow and stay afloat of your losses. And, and so I think that's where the similarities kind of remind me of the Great Recession. So having said that, I, I would not want to see the crude oil market take any more of a nosedive than it already has. And in other words, the February low in WTI is about 72 and a quarter. That was put in last month in February. That 2023 low, I think, needs to hold here. Um, I would go so far as to say that both the charts and the fundamentals right now kind of suggest this week's close could be kind of trend setting, especially heading into that Fed next week report and then the acreage report the following week. So I, I wouldn't want to see too much more chart damage here, whether it's the wheat or the crude oil. And if that's the case, then we really don't want to see the dollar start to go sharply higher. I like this one oh three dollar. I'd like it to get down to around 101.50 uh, if I had my wishes at this point. 
That makes sense. Mike, you know, you mentioned we've seen some chart damage here in the wheat market. Today, the market is trying to shrug that off. We're up four to five cents here in Chicago wheat. What's the trade watching as, uh, as action gets underway today? You know, what I've noticed this week, Mike, is we've had this Black Sea grain initiative on our minds for the better part of two, almost three weeks. And, and the trade has priced in this getting extended for another 120 days before expiration on Friday, Saturday of this week. Um, we don't have that agreement yet. Russia said they want 60 days. They want to cut the agreement in half for the extension. Ukraine says no, and it makes sense from a standpoint of freight risk and insurance risk. 60 days is not a long time to put a lot of money out there for boats and to have them sit for you know 60 or 70 days like many have had to in the ports on the Black Sea. And so what I've also noticed around this is we've seen a real big move in end users buying. They've really started to pick up they're buying. We've seen Jordan, Algeria, Japan, Tunisia, Saudi Arabia came in for over a million metric tons of wheat on a tender. And then just this morning, China came in and popped up a 612,000 metric ton corn purchase from the United States. And so I kind of get the sense that with this movement by the end users, they've been sitting on their hands until they know more. They don't see this Black Sea grain initiative really happening, and they're going ahead and moving as a result of that. So I'm hoping the rest of the market sees it the same way, and I think we'll know that based upon how those European wheat and corn futures trade. They were higher yesterday by a couple 3% at times. All right, Mike. So we're watching a potential disruption in exports out of the middle, uh, the Eastern European region. Wheat condition here in the United States. You're down there in wheat country, Mike. How does it look as emergence begins? Yeah, the the, the primary wheat belt. You know, I'm right on the Kansas-Missouri border. We're still in corn and bean country for the most part, but it's not too far from me. And what I saw a couple three weeks ago, versus what I'm hearing producers that I work with out west of me, say west of Manhattan and closer to Hutchinson and Wichita, um, there's good fields, but there's plenty of bad fields. And as you get west towards Colorado, it gets worse. And I think those crop conditions that the uh, NAS people put out yesterday for the state of Kansas, taking the very poor, poor conditions up to 52 percent versus 43 a week ago, and that compares to 38 percent a year ago, I would buy into all of that, Mike. I think we have almost double the problems that we had last year at this time. All right. We'll continue to see how the market interprets that as this spring moves forward. But Mike, as you mentioned, end of this month, we've got quarterly grain stocks report coming out. We've got planting intentions all on March 31st. What are you encouraging growers to do for risk management ahead of that day? Anything? Yeah, that's, that, that's an excellent question because you don't feel very good if you're in my line of work hedging corn or wheat because you feel like they've already got such a discount in them and there's so many weather issues out there. Um, I think that the best thing to do at this point, Mike, is if we lose those technicals in the crude, we lose those technicals in the wheat, go after the soybeans. They're still a good profit. Um, if you get a decent 60 plus yield and you can still get close to $13 for cash bushels in the fall, you know, do some of that, I think, and lock in some really good historically high profit per acre revenue. And I'd probably wrap around that some uh, option positions as well. And, you know, I've talked to clients and subscribers about getting up to 100% of insured bushels and not wasting this opportunity in case Brazil's crops there and in case U.S.-China relations get worse. And we don't see the demand base that the USDA sees right now. 
So soybeans, maybe take a look, see what you can secure out there, get some sales on the books. On the corn side, though, Mike, as you mentioned, you're okay just waiting in here to watch those signals? Yeah, I am on the cash side, Mike. I've had several clients with, you know, I've still got about half my corn from last year for clients uh, in the bins right now. I, I don't have any problem getting a 10 cent May put bought in case we have a washout type market, which, as I said earlier, if this is going to be like a financial crisis situation in 2008, nothing wrong with doing a 10 or 15 cent put to cover yourself on the downside for what you have in the bins. But I think the cash basis, the tight crop, that 15% cut in Argentina means something on the cash. All right. Hopefully it'll come back up to farmers here in the Midwest. Folks, we've been talking with Mike Zuzalo, founder of Global Commodity Research and Analytics. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Been a great pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center will join us for more when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Mosaic is introducing two new biological products, Biopath and PowerCoat. With spring planting getting close, we wanted to check in with Dion Pierce, product manager at the Mosaic Companies, about what should farmers be thinking about when it comes to an early season fertilizer application. Well, the first word that comes uh, to mind is availability. Growers want to know that the fertilizer they're applying is going to make it into the plant. And by adding a biological uh, to that fertilizer program, this can help ensure that those nutrients are more readily available, especially early in the season as crops are taking up those nutrients at a rapid pace. Can you explain this relationship between biologicals and fertilizer a little bit more? Sure. So as important as fertilizer is to plant growth or health, it's also important to know that some of those nutrients that are applied are going to become tied up, but they might be inaccessible. And similar to how you mine for fertilizer, okay, like potash or phosphate, and transform those into a prill that's applied to crop, biologicals can mine the soil helping to convert fertilizer that may have been tied up into a form that plants can readily use. We talk a lot about soil health in agriculture, Dion, particularly around sustainable agriculture. How do biologicals support the soil? Well, first I would say, you know, biologicals can help enhance microbial populations in the soil um, and they can help break down nutrients like phosphorus, making it more available. Um, we can also help build a more robust root system, right? And that's going to allow for better capture of nutrients like nitrogen. And, and that's just helping to prevent runoff in some cases. And we can also have a positive impact on recycling nutrients from organic matter or soil-bound nutrients from fertilizer that may be applied in years past. And then, and then also improving soil tilth, making it more productive. What benefits are most important to consider when deciding whether to add a biological to your fertilizer application? Great question. Uh, to start, you want to see that early season plant growth. And then from there, it's all about optimizing nutrient use. So increased nutrient availability and uptake, and then improving nutrient utilization. And where can growers go to learn more? Well, they can find more details at cropnutrition.com, or they can also sign up to get a free corn sprint kit at cornsprint.com. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did.
And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA marches on today, and now we're turning our focus over to the swine industry. The folks at the Swine Health Information Center keep track of diseases and other impacts throughout the swine industry, both domestically and globally, and they also work to keep hog farmers abreast with the latest advances in biosecurity. Joining us now to have this conversation is Dr. Paul Sundberg. He serves as the executive director of SHIC. And Paul, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. It's good to be with you. Before we get into what's happening with swine diseases around the world, Dr. Sunberg, I understand that Schick has been working on a pretty cool program on wean to harvest biosecurity, and you've got some announcements here this month. Could you fill us in? Yeah, you know, one of the worst kept secrets in the pork industry is the vulnerability of biosecurity on finishing sites. Um, that serves as a nidus of infection going back to breeding herds. And so we've done a real focus. Uh, program of wean to harvest biosecurity. Um, that includes finishing sites, includes weaning sites, and it includes transportation. We've uh, finished the first round of that call for proposals and funding proposals to enhance biosecurity on finishing sites and transport. Um, things like alternative livestock trailer cleaning methods, looking at decontamination of truck cabins, informing people about the effectiveness and efficiency of truck washes, um, testing uh, the success of cleaning and, and disinfecting, all of that on trucks. And then there's on sites, we're looking at both biocontainment and bioexclusion, keeping pathogens on the farm if you break, as well as how to keep them off to keep you safe. That first round of proposals is done. The, we funded 10 proposals out of that, and we're getting set now for round two. That will be coming up very shortly. We're not done. It's still a big push and it's still a big effort. And so we're not done with this thing. We're going to make this happen over the next year. And of course, that research is beginning. Those results will be coming out over time. Dr. Sundberg, will the Schick website be the place folks can go to keep up to speed on all of the, the advances in the research? Yeah, swinehealth.org. This is a cooperative effort between the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research and the Pork Checkoff. So we're going to do our best to make sure that people have uh, multiple opportunities to get this information, and we'll get that to them real time as it comes out because we want to make sure that this has an opportunity to make a difference. Absolutely. The safer we can keep our pork here in this country, the better return we can have for farmers across the land. So, Dr. Sundberg, let's turn our focus to swine diseases. Let's start here in the United States. Of course, we've been grappling with PERS as an industry for some time. How does the trend look on that disease as we head into spring? Yeah, I'll tell you what, Mike, uh, there's a real concern about a variant of PERS that's in the land right now, that's in the U.S. right now. You hear a lot about variants of viruses. Well, PERS has a variant as well. Um, it's called the Line 1C. And in, in the 10 years or so running up to 2021, there were only about 400 
cases of one C that were found in the U.S. In 2022 alone, there were over 250 cases of one C that were identified. This started as a as a focus of infection in right down in the Midwest, um, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, right down the heart of the Midwest. And one of the concerning things is now this year, early even early this year, we're seeing it moving east into Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Um, and and that's part of the concern. We got to talk about biosecurity on finishing floors again, because that's probably the way that this virus is being able to be transported from the Midwest to the Eastern breeding herds. Dr. Sundberg, is there a difference in the symptoms of a PERS versus a PERS 1C infection? Yeah, what we're finding on the farm is this 1C infection is much more protracted. It's harder to clean up. It's harder to get off than the usual PERS virus that we're used to dealing with. So um, we just had a webinar on this, and that can be found at swinehealth.org as well, where we had practitioners that have been dealing with this ex and experts in the research that are talking about the 1C and what producers and veterinarians can do to try to uh, control it as clean it up or, and prevent it from moving. All right. So we've got a challenge out there with PERS, Dr. Sunberg, PEDV. What are you seeing there? You know, PED is is pretty much right now in the normal spot of where we would expect. Uh, given the history of the changes of PED during the seasons, we're able to predict where it should be or where it will be. And there's about 12% or so of the tests that are coming in with, with enteric disease that are positive for PED. That's about right in the middle of what we'd expect. So that's continuing. There's going to be hot spots out there. But as an overall um, big look at the country, we're right in the middle of about what you'd think for PED right now in this time of year. All right. Well, that is a piece of good news there, Dr. Sundberg. Are there any other domestic health concerns you're keeping an extra sharp eye on there at Schick? Yeah, you know, uh, there are spikes in clostridium, which causes uh, pre-weaning diarrhea as well, spikes in clostridia as well as spikes in circovirus type 2. So it's part of this vaccination cleaning, all of this same issue of making sure that you're doing everything you can do on the farm to address your specific issues. That is so true, folks. Keep up to speed with the biosecurity best practices in that industry. Dr. Sunberg, let's jump out. Look around the world. I saw a number of headlines in the month of February about African swine fever making a resurgence. What were some of the noteworthy places it popped up here this past month? Well, uh, so uh, noteworthy places continue to be uh, Eastern Germany. Eastern Europe is a hot spot because they have such a high population of feral pigs, of wild boar there. And that serves as a reservoir for this virus to get into domestic pigs in those countries of Eastern Europe. Um, we just had another break in Germany. It was a small farm, but it was one that's probably had contact with uh, with feral pigs in the area. Romania continues to be a hot spot as well. That virus is continuing to circulate there, and it's being tough to address in Romania. Um, Southeast Asia, of course, continues. Wild boar in Singapore, for example, the same type of thing, same type of issue, as well as wild boar in Italy. Um, there's a lot of problems with Italy going on right now with wild boar infections continuing to spread there 
and they're having trouble getting in front of that. So it's an issue of, for us, we need to learn those lessons because they're dealing with it. And it's at our peril if we don't watch them and learn the lessons so we can apply that here to prevent or respond if we have to. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we do have African swine fever uh, almost in our backyard. It is on the uh, the island of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic. Uh, Dr. Sunberg, what have we heard from the USDA and the folks at the DR? Are we, we making progress on eradicating per, uh, ASF? Is, is that the goal down there in the Dominican yeah, Republic? That's a really good topic. Um, right now, USDA is doing everything they can do to support the Dominican Republic in their control and eradication effort. Um, what it amounts to, though, is there's only so much that USDA can do. They can't go down there and they can't demand that you do this and you do that. Um, it's going to be, an, and then in Haiti, you have a problem with just the lack of government and lack of control there. So ASF is on the island of Hispaniola. It's going to be on there for a long time. Um, what we've got to do right now, the focus is changing from how do we get it off of the island to how do we make sure that everything happens that we can that can happen to keep it on the island. Uh, Hispaniolans had classical swine fever for a long time, and it hasn't left. Uh, USDA and Customs and Border Protection, and it should be a partnership with the pork industry itself as well in the U.S. to make sure that we do everything that we can do to keep it on that island and not let it into our farms. Absolutely. Keep it off our shores. Uh, Dr. Sunberg, while we've got you in just a little bit of time left, foot and mouth disease continues to spread. Were there any flare-ups of that that you were watching here at Chick? Yeah, you know, uh, foot and mouth disease is exactly right. It continues to spread. It's not causing the flare problems that, um, that increase our risk. I think the issue here is the increased risk. It's not like ASF where where that pressure is on our border. So foot and mouth disease is there. There are some new ones, though. For, for anybody that's interested, go on to swinehealth.org because we have, um, we have sheets of these viruses. There's Japanese encephalitis virus. There's Geta virus in China that's showing up. And there's Nipah virus in, in Bangladesh that's showing up. We've got information about all of those on the swinehealth.org website. It's things that we're keeping an eye on trying to make sure that we are as informed as possible and make sure that we're as safe as possible. That's what it's all about, folks. Swinehealth.org for all of those resources and the biosecurity research as that comes out. We've been talking with Dr. Paul Sunberg, the executive director over there at Chick. And Dr. Sunberg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to take a look at the legal situation surrounding the cattle industry with Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel at NCBA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Power Coat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Power Coat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. 
Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Russia has agreed to extend the grain initiative. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Russia has agreed to extend the grain initiative that allows exports from three approved Ukrainian ports, but only for another 60 days. Ukraine says that the original agreement states that extension shall be for 120 days, and it assumes that to be the case. Turkey and the United Nations continue to negotiate with both parties to bring them to consensus with the end of the current agreement coming this weekend. Corn and wheat traders will be following these developments closely. In addition, USD reported this morning that exporters sold 24.1 million bushels of old crop corn to China over the past 24 hours, contributing to the recent climb in demand for U.S. corn. The recent price break is buying demand for U.S. corn, which is favorably priced on the world market, and the Argentine crop rapidly shrinking due to its drought. The waters did calm a bit overnight ahead of this morning's inflation data release, allowing stock features to bounce modestly in a nervous market environment following the weekend's bank failures. The VIX is traded on either side of 26 overnight, dropping to 24 this morning. While the dollar is firming up, yields on 10-year treasuries are trading near 3.61% in what was an active night of trading, while yields on 2-year treasuries are trading near 4.27% after falling to a 6-month low of 3.83% overnight. Crude oil prices are about 1% lower this morning as they hover just above critical chart support. While the grain and oil seed market is mostly lower as well, broader commodity markets continue to face headwinds from economic uncertainties on Wall Street that have many traders worried about longer-term demand prospects. Now, some of that data is the Consumer Price Index data that came in pretty much as expected this morning, allowing Wall Street to give a big sigh of relief. Inflation is still a problem, but at least there weren't any more surprises. The CPI rose 0.4% month-on-month in February, matching analyst expectations and down from 0.5% the previous month. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We have seen a lot of action in Washington, D.C. over the past 18 months on the waters of the U.S. rule. We've talked about it ad nauseum. Well, unfortunately, folks, we're going to continue talking about it, at least for the foreseeable future. Last week, we saw some action in the House of Representatives taking a vote against the Biden-WOTUS rule. Joining us now for an update on this whole political situation is Mary Thomas Hart. She serves as the chief counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Mary Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. So let's start with WOTUS. We have a Supreme Court case going on right now looking to decide whether or not WOTUS is constitutional and how. And then we had an administration release a new rule covering this exact same topic back in December. And now we're taking exemption with that new rule. Mary Thomas, what did the House of Representatives do last week and why? Great question, Mike. And and I think that is some important background. You know, we're in the middle of the Supreme Court considering the definition of WOTUS for the fourth time. Meanwhile, the Biden administration issued its final definition for WOTUS um, in the middle of this, this Supreme Court case. Um, certainly, I think, you know, trying to get ahead of the process, right? Trying to kind of get a jump on the Supreme Court. And so one of the tools that Congress has in its toolbox is the Congressional Review Act, which allows both bodies of Congress to look at and essentially provide a vote of disapproval um, related to these rules that come from the administration. We most recently saw it um, just a couple weeks ago when both the House and Senate passed resolutions of disapproval related to the Labor Department's ESG rule. Um, that was vetoed by the president, but it was the first time that we've seen this Congressional Review Act successfully used by both chambers of Congress um, in the last couple of years, really since the Trump administration. Um, so Congress has implemented that same blueprint again. Last week, the House of Representatives considered a CRA to disapprove the Biden administration's WOTUS definition, and that resolution will go to the Senate this week. Right. It was voted out of the House. We did have success. And as I understand it, Mary Thomas, correct me if I'm wrong, it was a fairly bipartisan vote, wasn't it, on the House side? I believe so, which, you know, I think furthers our our argument and our position that WOTUS really impacts landowners across the country, right? Regardless of if you're in a red district or a blue district, you're going to see the impact of increased federal authority over land and water and the increased cost that comes with getting permits under the Clean Water Act. Absolutely. These things are a huge issue for anybody who owns land. So, Mary Thomas, we've got the House vote. They voted successfully to to what did you say? They're they're disapproving of the rule. What's the the legal jargon of what it's they called, did? It's called a joint resolution of disapproval. And so that is the the term of art used through the Congressional Review Act. Um, and it, it's basically a, a piece of law, right? So it gets some special exemptions, um, especially when it comes to getting that vote on the floor of the Senate. That's why they're gonna be able to vote on the joint resolution this week is just you know kind of the structure of the Congressional Review Act. But we've gotten it through the House of Representatives. We're expected to get it through the Senate and then President Biden will likely veto it. Um, but I think it sends an important message to the White House, you know, and, and is an attempt at least to kind of recorrect the, the balance of powers and, and the checks and balances of, of the three branches of government. 
So once the president, as we assume, vetoes this uh, resolution of disapproval, that's that's the end of it from the administrative's perspective, correct? It is. And, you know, it, it could go back to Congress and, you know, you can overturn a veto with a two thirds vote. Um, we likely don't have enough votes to, you know, reach that that two thirds threshold to override a presidential veto. But like I said, I think it sends an important message and, you know, important for your listeners to know that this isn't our only um, our only effort. Right. We really utilize all three branches of government to advance our policy priorities, especially when it comes to an issue like WOTUS. We're working through the CRA process. We've participated in the rulemaking process. Um, we are engaged at the Supreme Court. We expect an opinion from the Supreme Court in April. We're also um, suing the Biden administration in relation to the rule directly. So we're in court fighting that rule. So we are truly using all of the tools in the toolbox. Mary Thomas, could you talk to us a little bit about the court case uh, that that NCBA is pursuing? What's a timeline like that look like on a big federal policy like this for it to actually be through the court system? Of course, yes. So, um, like I like I mentioned earlier, one of our our tools in the toolbox is suing the Biden administration on this final rule. So, NCBA has joined a coalition of trade associations, both agricultural and non-agricultural, um, to to fight against this rule. And and the first stage is hopefully halting the rule before it even goes into effect. And that's through a preliminary injunction. The rule is set to go into effect, I believe, on March 27th. So um, we are currently in the process of briefing the court um, to hopefully get a preliminary injunction and, and stop that rule until we can litigate it fully. Now, at the same time, the Supreme Court is expected to issue a decision in the Sackett case this spring. And if the Supreme Court issues an opinion that kind of pulls back on the significant nexus standard, then we could see this rule uh, go by the wayside. The EPA may have to take the rule back to the drawing board. All right. We'll watch all of that play out. As you mentioned, we're expecting that Sackett decision from the Supreme Court here this spring. But Mary Thomas, we don't really know they're coming out until they come out, right? Right. That's uh, part of the part of the mystery around the Supreme Court, right, is that everything is supposed to be confidential until it's it's released. So, you know, as far as granting cert to new cases, um, getting opinions, it, it's all incredibly secretive and, and we don't have a lot of information on those timelines. So, you know, we could get an opinion tomorrow, we could get an opinion in June, but past precedent has told us that the, that the Supreme Court usually issues these types of decisions, Clean Water Act decisions, um, around April. So that's really what we're kind of focusing in on. And I would say expecting a decision from the Supreme Court next month. All right, folks, keep those Google alerts tuned to that decision in the Sackett case on the WOTUS rule from the administration. Mary Thomas, we do have some breaking news, and I'm going to kind of throw to that. It's in your wheelhouse, sort of. It's, again, EPA-related, but it was announced today that uh, the EPA is proposing maximum contaminant levels for six types of toxic PFAS, which is a phrase, a word that I, we've heard a lot over this past year, and I think we're going to hear more. It, is this something you were aware that the EPA was going to do? And if so, can you fill us in on what they're trying to do here? Great question. We were expecting these maximum contaminant levels um, to be proposed. Uh, wasn't, you know, 
wasn't exactly sure what day we were going to get it, but but knew it was coming. You know, I think EPA has been really transparent um, in their approach to PFAS and in the, the rules that they're planning to put in place. Um, a couple of years back, actually, during the Trump administration, we got a fairly, a fairly detailed PFAS roadmap, right, that indicated which rules and, you know, kind of a timeline for how EPA planned to address this issue. Now, for your listeners that don't know what PFAS is, um, PFAS are, are commonly called forever chemicals, right, because they do a very important job in the economy. They provide kind of a, a waterproof barrier around anything and everything. They're used in in, a, in numerous domestic products like uh stick-free pans or non-stick pans, uh, waterproof furniture, stain-proof, you know, carpets, um, tarps. Um, They're also used in firefighting foams, um, both on military bases and, uh, you know, by airlines. Um, So they they are certainly present in the environment. The issue is that there has been some, you know, link to human health impacts associated with PFAS contamination. So um, EPA really is taking this kind of whole of agency approach to addressing PFAS contamination. We believe that drinking water should be the priority. So we're happy to see these MCLs issued today. Um, Have not seen the proposed rule yet. We expect it to come this afternoon. Um, And so we'll certainly have the opportunity to, to do some analysis and provide comments on that proposal but really focusing on drinking water instead of other areas like a a really broad CERCLA hazardous substance designation, we think is the best way for EPA to to address this issue. All right. We'll continue to watch, as Mary Thomas mentioned, the details, the official language will be coming out on this shortly, but watch for more conversation over these forever chemicals in coming years. Mary Thomas, before we let you go, we've also got a Black Vulture Relief Act pending there in Congress. Is this something NCBA is excited about? Very excited. We, we were um, very pleased to see this bill introduced last week. Um, and it's bipartisan, repre- introduced in the House of Representatives. And the bill's going to allow livestock producers to take black vultures without a permit if they believe the vulture will cause death or injury to their livestock. So that would certainly be um, a huge improvement in the black vulture space. We, we know that that species has been um, quite quite harmful for our producers, especially in in the Southeast and and on the East Coast. So any relief that we can provide there, I think will be uh, welcome. Absolutely. It's no surprise that this act is bipartisan and it was introduced by representatives from the Southeast. John Rose of Tennessee and Darren Soto, Democrat of Florida, brought that act into the the, uh, Congress. We'll see how it goes from here. Folks, we've been talking today with Mary Thomas Hart. She's the chief counsel at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. She keeps up to speed on all the issues impacting the beef industry there in D.C. Mary Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We'll have more AOA right here when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block, 
Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. In the first installment of a six-week series, Nelson Neal, head of CHS Global Research, describes trends shaping the future of agriculture. Today, we're talking about outside forces. Nelson, if you would, describe the big shifts you're seeing in macroeconomic forces. If you look at the recent past in terms of the U.S. economy, by recent past, I'm talking stepping back to the Great Recession. Let's call that circa 2008. For the ensuing 12-year period, I would describe the U.S. economy and and consumers as living through a period of tranquility and reasonable prosperity. And the pandemic shock delivered a jolt of unemployment. It was followed by stimulus dollars moving into the economy. And when we have dollars coming into consumers' pockets, what happens? They have a tendency to spend it. And that's just what they did. And while we were having these supply chain constraints, we ended up having too many dollars chasing too few goods. And that, of course, resulted in significant inflationary pressures. And agriculture in and of itself is certainly not immune to those inflationary pressures. So how do you see these changes impacting agriculture and decisions on the farm? There are a number of impacts, both at the ag-retail level and on the farm, when we think about some of these inflationary pressures. Number one, the cost of borrowing money is going to go up. If you've got a variable rate operating line or crop inputs loan, they're going to go up and they're going to cost you more money. Number two, with higher interest rates and the Fed trying to stave off some of these economic concerns, higher interest rates typically result in a stronger dollar. And a stronger dollar has a negative impact on the exports of key agricultural commodities. So that's point number two. Number three, and this is a bit more nuanced, Mike, when you have these big economic shocks or goings on in the marketplace, they can spill over into our commodities markets that our farmers and ranchers rely upon. That's Nelson Neal, head of CHS Global Research. Nelson, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. 
but that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Powercoat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Powercoat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA marches on here today. And since we spoke earlier with Dr. Paul Sundberg about the impact of swine diseases on that industry, I figured it was worth checking in on the impact of another really terrible animal illness. And that, of course, is HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza. We've got some new details from the USDA as this HPAI outbreak moves into, well, solidly into its second year. The USDA announced they have spent over $670 million working to contain HPAI. And that's between cleaning up sites that have had infections and also indemnifying owners for those losses. Of course, when HPAI is found, in a poultry barn, for example, that entire barn is euthanized and the farm owner then typically does get some sort of indemnification for the loss of those animals. Outlays, uh, USDA explained, have included more than $414 million in compensation for depopulated birds. They've spent another $142 million to cull flocks, to dispose of dead birds, and uh, working on activities to kill the different virus. The USDA went on to say they have spent another $114 million in personnel, in state agreements, getting approvals to get all of these things across the finish line, and just costs in the field. Uh, they did note that this is the worst ever outbreak in terms of the number of birds infected or culled in order to prevent inspection, and uh, it has certainly been tough. Uh, as we noted, egg prices have been very, very high. Of course, a factor of that has been the death loss sustained in the poultry sector at by HPAI as it has continued to spread. However, egg prices have fallen sharply here in recent weeks. They're down by more than $2 a dozen on the East Coast market, which does tend to drive the news cycles on issues like this. So that's probably why we're hearing less about egg prices. And it's expected that we're going to see that price start to tick back up as we get closer to the Easter season. Demand for eggs does typically rise ahead of Easter, as do prices. So continue to watch the impact of HPAI here in recent weeks. The laying industry is working very hard to get those barns cleaned and refilled, get those eggs moving back out into the, uh, the global supply chain. But there could be some headaches ahead as HPAI now is considered endemic, which means it might be here with us to stay. That industry will continue trying to make those adjustments. We 
we've also got an interesting story that I wanted to focus in on. It ties together a lot of recent issues we've discussed on this program. Of course, sustainability, top of mind for a lot of folks outside agriculture, looking at our market as a way to, to make a little green. Well, Chevron is one place seeing green to make a little green here in the ag industry. But what they've done is is interesting, it sounds to me. So Chevron, it was announced this morning, they're teaming up with grains handler Bungie. And they're working with Corteva, the large agri-seed company, and their goal is to plant as many as 10 million additional acres of canola here in the United States. Now, for a lot of us listening to this show right now, we might be familiar with canola if you're uh, along the Canadian border, if you're up in North South Dakota, Montana, perhaps in Idaho a little bit. Maybe you've seen some of those gorgeous fields of canola. It is a northern oil seed. That's where canola is. That's where canola is from. It's what those Canadian growers grow in a large part instead of soybeans, which is, as we get south, typically what American producers tend to tend to grow. That's the wrinkle here in the Chevron announcement. This plan between Chevron, Corteva, and Bungie calls for farmers in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee to sow, sow canola down after soybeans or cotton. The idea is this could be a second crop across that Mid-South, and petroleum companies like Chevron, the reason they're being lured into this market is because they are looking for a feedstock for more renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. So this is called Bungie Chevron Ag Renewables. It is a joint venture between those two companies. I have reached out to uh, officials at Bungie and at Chevron, hoping to get a little more explanation on this and how can folks participate? What all is going to be included in this push to grow more canola down there in the Mid-South? And if I hear back, I will be sure to bring us an update here on AOA. We do have some other news that River related. Of course, it's hard to believe it was just two and a half months ago, maybe three months ago now, we were watching the Mississippi River run dry. That drought up and down the central United States had completely pushed that river to the lowest levels in history. And here we are, March 11th, We've got the Mississippi River, the upper Mississippi River, open for Navigan. This is one of the earliest years it's been open in recent history. Two barges were able to push their way north, um, both pushing six barges, and they entered Lake Pepin, opening the upper Mississippi shipping season already. So that is underway. Do expect to see more barges moving south here in the next couple of months. As we do know, uh, we heard from Mike Zuzula earlier in the program about the struggles over the Russian Black Sea-Ukraine grain agreement. As things sit right now, everything is on the table. Russia has proposed a 60-day extension of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Ukraine is sticking to 120 days. Those negotiations are ongoing. We'll see how this ends up progressing before that Saturday deadline currently that ends the uh, the grain shipping agreement out of uh, those countries. Do have some other interesting news. This one's coming out of China, and we've talked about China a lot over the past two years. Their premier, Li Kuang, was, uh, was out yesterday, Kang, excuse me, and he said that the country of China is going to focus on revitalizing its rural areas. They're going to focus on the ecological, social, and cultural aspects of the countryside, and they're going to continue to promote economic growth and pledge to roll out more incentives to support and this is the important part, uh, 
grain growing and consolidate food security for China's 1.4 billion people. We heard uh, Chinese uh, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping over on Christmas Day announced that China will be spending more money. They will be spending more time. They will be refocusing on their domestic grain industry. And this certainly sounds like it was another block in that direction. Continue to watch what China is doing here over there as this year goes on. Folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Be sure to join us tomorrow. We'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at GrainX, or StoneX, rather. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite.